that was Creek and Kills, which recently transformed from Reverse Engineers, song Devastator, and Kate Bell on vocal and bass. Welcome to our seventh segment so far of iArt New York, brought to you by our hosts Isabella Gola and Rebecca Major. My name is Isabella, and I'm a visual artist and an independent curator, and I work for the Polish Cultural Institute New York as a curator of visual arts and design programming. Rebecca Major is a visual artist studying masters in art history at Hunter College, and she's also conducting internship at the Jewish Museum in the curatorial department. We have a very special guest with us tonight, Melissa Bianca Amore. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'd like to announce that this show's mission, I Art New York, uh, is a talk show that will explore uh, current exhibitions and events in and around New York. We'll compare museum exhibitions that, and review shows in the city and highlight what we think is relevant and interesting aspects of what we see and encounter. We'll also be bringing to you interviews with special guests who choose uh, their career path in the arts, curators, critics, artists, and performers. Today, our special guest is an Australian-Italian international curator, art critic, and independent scholar based in New York, Melissa Bianca Amore. Melissa's primary area of exploration surrounds the study of phenomenology, the limitations of perceived space and interactive spatial aesthetics. A highly acclaimed critic and essayist for almost 15 years right now. She has written for leading publications and authored exhibition catalogs since 2005. Uh, Amora's background is in art history, phenomenology, and philosophy. She's currently a visiting critic and a curator for selected organizations and academic institutions, including Parsons School of Design, the New School University, Residency Unlimited, and Art Omi Artist Residency. Amore co-founded, uh, together with William Stover, a non-for-profit arts organization titled Recited, which re-evaluates the architecture of the site and conceptual space, its materiality, particularities, and relationship to work of art. The collaborative recently curated Traveling Spaces, a group exhibition that addresses ideas of the site and space and questioned how we travel and move through space. And the exhibition featured a series of site interventions and perceptual interruptions, which included works by Caroline Clotier and William Besseling. In 2017, Recited Curated Sites of Knowledge at Jane Lombard Gallery, examined spatial semiotics and language as a visual structure of knowledge, and included works by Richard Artswager, Henry Chopin, Sophie Totti, and Michael Rakowitz. Amore curated a solo exhibition titled Threefold, on Australian-American installation artist Natasha Jones-Messenger at El Museo de los Sures in New York. Threefold was a large site installation. It was an optical prism. Amore has also been the curatorial advisor for uh, public artwork commissions, both locally and Australia, and continues today to advise for a private dealer based in New York alongside her own curatorial projects. It's so nice to have you over. Moving on to the first question... Um, thank you, Melissa, for being here with us. Um, and uh, in relation to your interests as a curator and writer and critic, we were discussing before the show that you have like two trajectories. One is related to architecture, and very generally, and the other one is related to phenomenology. And so 
my question to you relates to your thinking along those lines in regards to the philosophy of phenomenology. And I was reading in an interview that I read online with you published by Projects of Imagination, where you spoke about reaching beyond a normative perception of art. In the interview, you related that to Plato's allegory of the cave, which our listeners might be familiar with. But in any case, you related that to Plato's allegory of the cave and the fire and a desire to uncover what it is that is making us see and perceive. You said, quote, whatever you are looking at, it is important to ask, what is making you see, unquote. Is this idea similar to the idea of deconstructing the way we perceive? I think it's a fascinating idea, and I wonder if you would elaborate on your investigations into the questions concerning phenomenology. Sure. Um, You know, the idea of phenomenology is extraordinarily complex. So let me go back to this idea of what he's making you see. It has a multitude of variables of layers. Uh, Essentially, we need to question what are the conditions of experience and how do we experience an object or thing? And how do we unlearn what we've learned in order to perceive something as a thing in itself without a relative association? So this idea of what he's making me see comes with a multiplicity of ideas. It, it is a learnt disposition. We learn how to see, and this learning is a predeterminism that defines how we form an understanding of the very thing under observation. So essentially it's about perception and how is perception formed and what are the epistemological foundation that provide a basis for the activity of perceiving. And in my opinion, in many ways, perception, um, which is a really lovely idea and way to think about it, operates like a, a labyrinth of knowledge as an architecture that frames and navigates what we already know into a system of correlative relationships, hence the operative word, what is it that we already know and how do we know what we know? What is this knowing? And our preconditioned perceptual faculty is also limited within this framework. So the fundamental question is, what is the preconditioning that activates or drive the intentionality towards an object or knowing? And Plato's allegory of the cave in the Republic written, which was written in 381 BC, describes essentially how perception is formed. And in many ways, I truly believe that Plato was the pioneer. Um, It's... uh, an odd word to use pioneer in reference to Plato, but uh, the beginnings of phenomenology and perception really began with this allegory. And that is, he really describes the reality that we construct and make up for ourselves as being within the parameters of the, cra- of the cave. The Greek philosopher's theory is still one of the most compelling in Western philosophy today, illustrating the complexities of perception and seeing, and more importantly, the difference between the appearance of pure form and form. Plato uses the allegory to provide a basis for questioning what we see before us. It underpins his complex theories of forms, which in general terms proposes the forms we perceive, whether trees, people or objects are merely shadows or copy of the ideal forms and not the forms in themselves. So basically, in essence, do we have access to the pure forms themselves? So just to really recap on what the actual allegory is let's just really go back to this idea plato imagines a world where prisoners have been chained underground since childhood 
their legs, heads and necks are immobilised, which restricts their vision towards a wall in front of them. Their source of light seeps into the cave from a fire burning outside and as object or people move around the fire, shadows are projected inside the wall cave. The prisoners begin to comprehend their reality as nothing more than shadows and become conditioned to see the shadows as real forms. When they make their world intelligible through language or sounds, they describe the object's copy and not the object as it is. Mm-hmm. Now, if a prisoner escapes, according to Plato, they would recognise that the world, as they perceived from within the cave, was in fact an illusion. And it is at this critical moment when the prisoner sees a pure form of knowledge alongside its likeness or its imitation that they have become perceptually aware. Plato's clever allegory demonstrates the cons- that conceivably our conditioned world hence the word conditioned, also conforms to what we perceive and what we know. Now, to really unpack this idea and to bring it back um, to, say, someone like uh, James Terrell, who's an installation artist emerging from the space and light movement, who really deals with uh, phenomenology and perception and tries to examine the concepts inherent in in perception through his large-scale installations, he describes Plato's cave as such. This is what uh, Terrell says. I make spaces that apprehend light for our perception and in some way gather it or seem to hold it. So in that way, it's a little bit like Plato's cave. We sit in a cave with our backs to reality, looking at the reflection of the reality on the cave wall. As an analogy to how we perceive and the imperfections of perception, I think is very interesting. And to extend this idea of Terrell even further, I'm going to use a quote from Milou Ponti, who's an instrumental figure within the discourse of phenomenology. A lot of these artists in the space and light movement were turning the pages of Milou Ponti's Phenomenology of Perception, which was uh, translated into English uh, from the French version around the 1950s. It was originally published in 1945. And in many ways, Milou Ponti extends Edmund Husserl's idea of embodiment even further. And what uh, Malou Ponty says, he remarks, we make perception out of the things perceived, and since perceived things themselves are obviously accessible through perception, we end up understanding neither. We are caught up in a world and do not succeed in extricating ourselves from it in order to achieve consciousness of the world. So you have these really two interesting ideas from the philosopher and from the visual artist that are really trying to examine how perception is formed and that perception is actually framed by perception. Mm -hmm. So in brief, you know, we really need to ask what is making you see the object in that particular way, form or structure. It's not just about perception as a relative to perspective in any way. It's so much more aligned to cognition, consciousness as being formed and directed and learned in the early stages of, of development. So we need to ask whether we can perceive an object without knowing it. And I often actually ask most artists that I interview as a critic this fundamental question. So I just repeated whether we can perceive an object without knowing it. Mm -hmm. And that, in my opinion, is truly the complexity of phenomenology. Do we have to know the object in order to experience it? And what is the process of attaining meaning to an object? Is there a difference between the appearance of an object or the representation of an object And how do we perceive or experience the representation of an object distinct to the object itself? So all these 
questions mm-hmm. um, form the basis of object ontology and phenomenology. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a really complex question because it deals with elements of sight and it deals with elements of the, the forming basis of knowledge. So mm-hmm. to really even try to explain this in a, in a very distinct way, I often use an example from physicist Arthur Zajonk uh, to explain the complexities of perception and how it's formed. And he uses, um, he suggests that real vision begins when a child learns how to see. And this learning is what shapes and frames our perception throughout, his, uh, throughout life. In his book that he wrote called Catching the Light, he presents a number of case studies that illustrate this claim. He restages a story that was told by surgeons Marie and, and Le Prince, who successfully operated an eight-year-old boy who was blinded from cataracts since birth. So they were able to grant him the organ of the eyes but not vision. So this is a very interesting complexity as well um, and in an attempt to examine whether the boy could see and, and ultimately distinguish shape and form. So Maru waved his hand in close proximity to the boy's eye, but what the boy could see was essentially shadows of light. He could feel it move and even, as he said, hear it move, but he still needed laboriously to learn to see it move. Light and eyes were not enough to grant him sight. Now, this example suggests that perception is much more than pure sight and perhaps aligned to the entire construction of the observable world. So if perception is, in some sense, acquired, it is, merely, is it merely just applied knowledge? And if it is mm-hmm. in this case, then we need to unpack the idea of what knowledge is. Um, and if you could tell me what knowledge is, then I could essentially understand the basis of perception and what this complexity of phenomenology is. You know... Uh, mm-hmm. It's so it's really incredible. interesting because um, uh, since in Plato's uh, Plato's cave theory uh, challenges the belief that um, we need empirical evidence uh, as a validating point for knowledge, uh, we Plato says uh, says we eventually we don't have access to knowledge, and what you're saying is that still by perception we can reinforce that. Uh, through conditioning um, uh, to uh, seeking the essence of what we are looking at by uh, looking at it and experiencing it from all these different ways. So in a way, you're bringing the scientific element of perception and um, this empirical you know, device, which perception is, but do you, uh, you, you suggest to activate it in a different way? You see you, what I'm saying? Though, yes, right? I, I certainly do. And, you know, there's a couple of uh, contentious points there because perception is being challenged on whether it is empirical experience. Okay. So empiricism is based on pure sight, pure experience, pure bodily functionality, how to experience the object through sight, through functionality of the body. Um, now, Meluponti is very much about the body being of space, the body being part of space. So the whole fundamental premise of phenomenology questions the basis of perception, which is not based on empiricism, that we, you know, many philosophers agree that perception is formed through a multiplicities of layers, not just empiricism. Uh, and that's its actual basis of contention. So we need to ask, 
the question that I originally asked, what is the very fundamental form of perception? How is perception formed if it's not based through pure experience, if it's not based through pure sight? How is sight formed? Sight is formed through images projected within the mind that is then projected externally. Therefore, how is that consciousness actually developed? So Mm -hmm. it is so complex and so rich and so wonderful because it really returns to the basis of ascetics, which, uh, you know, the root of ascetics, asceticism, means to perceive. Um, so what is making us perceive? It's not empiricism. It certainly is not empiricism because we need to question everything that we see before us. And that is the basis. And I often describe perception as a paradox as it functions like a frame that shapes the structures of consciousness, but it also abstracts and limits the boundaries of experience within this singular context. So it's this binary opposition for me, or rather that interval that's of interest. So let me let me just explain it, because it's often very confused. So essentially what Tyrell, Erwin, uh, Meluponti, Husserl, Sartre, uh, Plato are really trying to and I'm not going to unravel the complexities of of, uh, philosophy here, but what we're really trying to unravel is perception is formed through learning in early stages of childhood. So that learning essentially gives us the tools to evaluate an object, to evaluate the empiricism that Isabella's uh, Mm -hmm. relating to. So what phenomenology is trying to do in essence is trying to understand what is that learning can we disrupt that learning and that's what i'm trying to do actually question how we disrupt that learning because if we disrupt that learning then we have a whole new way of perceiving the object so the learning begins like exactly with the the example that i gave with the physicist arthur zajonk the young boy, even though he was awarded sight when he lost his vision, he still couldn't see mm-hmm. because he needed to learn to see the form. He needed to learn to actually know what the form is, which goes back to my question, can we perceive something without knowing it? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not going to get into metaphysics here mm-hmm. and or quantum mechanics, but we certainly can. But Obviously, within quantum mechanics, there's a there's a, an understanding that the universe is made up of pure energy and frequency. So when you look at perception within this context, if it is so made up of, of pure energy and frequency and light, which is pure energy and frequency, this justifies the physicist's claim that all, that, all the boy was seeing was shards of light. Mm-hmm. And he needed to learn through this preconditioning how to form the object that we are the creators of forming that object. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's such a complexity to get your head around, and I <laughs> grapple with it all the time, um, you know, because once you enter into that zone, it's very difficult to to basically accept what you're seeing mm-hmm. as, you know, pure form and to really understand that. You know, I, I recently um, interviewed Alicia Kawada as an extraordinary Polish installation artist, for Bomb Magazine, and which we'll get to a little later on. But um, she talks about this exact thing. How do we construct reality? What is the very form that makes up our reality? Absolutely. That's, that's really fascinating. And um, with this 
reinforcing of uh, what we perceive, what we search for as the pure form, as what we launch as our knowledge of reality. Um, I think language also plays a big role, how we perceive and then how we define what we see. And uh, I think lang language has a big, it's a, as operating structure on which we base these concepts. That's why I wanted to speak uh, about sites of knowledge. Uh, the exhibit at Jane Lombard Gallery, uh, it was a group exhibit that you co-curated with William Stover, uh, which then became the foundation for something bigger, an organization uh, called uh, Recited, which we'll get to a little later. The exhibition examined spatial semiotics and language as a visual structure of knowledge and included works of Simone Douglas, Richard Archswager, Guy uh, Laramie, Jen Malza, Christine McIver, Enrico Isamu uh, Koima, I apologize if I mispronounce, uh, Michael Rakovitz, uh, Karen Schiff, and Sophie Totti, as well as Henry Chopin, uh, who was a pioneer um, in the art of concrete poetry, in which the visual design of his typewritten text was integral in conveying meaning beyond any verbal significance the text might have contained previously. By understanding his process in particular, it helped to locate a point of entry into exhibition as a whole. Uh, for, for instance, uh, by attempting to separate text from its meaning, Chopin reveals how deeply the two are in fact inseparable through his chosen medium, the, the typewriter. Um, so um, the question is, is he not expressing that in any pictorial representation can only be accessed or perceived through language? That's a really great question. Um, you know, I firstly want to address your original statement of the language right. um, being a huge constitutive uh, limitation or expansion which way we want to perceive it um, to the basis and foundation right, like of Deleuze, perception. Derrida. Uh, well, language as a semiotics mm -hmm. um, certainly structures our knowledge of the world, absolutely, um, and our knowledge of attachment and our knowledge of attaching meaning to an object. And language is, a, you know, does confine the experience of perception and spatial cognition with a, within an organisational semiotics. So the exhibition sites of knowledge was definitely uh, an extension of Recited's research into perception and large-scale exhibitions, um, which we'll get to a little later, and I'll describe that further. But, you know, looking at language as a structure, as an architecture, um, and as a visual composition, and all the artists from Richard Artswager, Chopin, Guy Laramie, Jeanne Mazza, Kristen MacGyver, um, you know, in examine the ideologies and techniques once employed by the concrete poets where they used linguistic fragments or elements as a structural form and as a topography. So really a lot of these artists were and do examine how the, the function of the symbol and language per se can function distinct from its meaning. Right. So how does language, can language be a visual structure? And can we actually engage with language without its intended meaning? How do we do that? How do we dis disassociate, again, that unlearning? How can we actually just read a topography independently to the implied 
meaning or, or intentionality. And essentially, you know, they were creating structural elements. So the exhibition was conceived uh, through rigorous research and studio visits with mm-hmm. a lot of these artists um, and dealing with the estates. And essentially, we wanted to re-examine the conceptions and foundations of epistemology as a structure and framing de- device. As I said, as, as continuing our research with architecture, language and the objects as challenging mode of perception. And language certainly challenges our ideas and understanding of modes of perception. What's also interesting is the exhibition addressed critical ideas about history, authorship and visual structures of knowledge um, and really asked the question, how do we look at knowledge? How does knowledge sit? What is the site of knowledge? Mm-hmm. When we really think about the abstraction of knowledge as an abstract thought, what is its site? What is its landscape? In what form does knowledge come? What is its medium? What is the medium of knowledge? Yes, we have a you know we have library, we have a book, we have thinking, we you know all mm-hmm. these abstractions and variables of how knowledge is presented. We have you know created rubrics of disciplines from quantum physics to mathematics to resegment and categorize knowledge. Is that knowledge? Is that applied knowledge? You know we have all these different structures of our collective history, whether it's both observed or imagined. You know, they all right. sit under this one rubric of knowledge. I mean, it's such a fascinating idea. What I think also becomes interesting is that the gallery itself becomes a site of knowledge through your creating this um, event, in a, in a sense, by your focus on the question itself and by collecting these artists' work in one space with that intention. Yeah, and, you know... What occurred within this exhibition is you had Guy Laramie's The Grand Library, which, you know, he's a French-Canadian artist. He cuts meticulously into used books and he selects books that have uh, an inherent inherent meaning, mm-hmm. like the encyclopedia. And what he does, he carves into it and he brings back knowledge back to its its origin, which is the landscape. He sees knowledge as being originated within the landscape, originated within forms of sounds, ideas coming from the landscape as a side of knowledge. So what he does is he recontextualizes these really extraordinary books into these grand canyons, into these grand landscapes. Um, and, you know, so you have someone like Guy Laramie's Grand Library, which was sitting alongside the Iraqi-American artist Michael Rakovic's books which the you know which were like ruins um and basically with the assistance of stone carvers from afghanistan and italy he remade books from the state library of castle that were destroyed during the bombing by the british uh royal air force in world war Two. so again you've got this really interesting undertaking of collective histories recontextualized within a gallery so as as well as just playing with visual structures of knowledge, you're also playing with the architecture of memory and how memory is being recontextualized, reconceived. Um, so we, we really wanted to look at this idea of knowledge and what does the encyclopedia mean today? What does language mean today in terms of information, in terms of returning back to these extraordinary thinkers um, and what's like, so interesting also is that each artist identifies and approaches the problem in a completely different way, but arrives in a space where there's this, a shared concept around 
this idea of of relating knowledge through memory and histories and inherent knowledge within the piece itself through text through text you know text is such a powerful poeticism you know it carries vibration it carries movement it carries a visual fluidity and then when you can recontextualize these book as a as an artifact of of archaeology it also becomes something else Mm -hmm. and i think you know in the exhibition sites of knowledge the conversation that we were really trying to create was that exchange and really looking at language as a visual topography and Mm -hmm. really going back to this idea of whether we can actually extract meaning from these topographies and extract meaning from the encyclopedia Mm -hmm. you know when how all these objects are being reformed and recontextualized. How do they lose their meaning? How do they bring back their meaning? So these were just a lot of the questions we were asking as a primary basis. It leads me to my next question because there seems to be a crossover between situating these artists within a gallery and creating that site of knowledge your website that you launched entitled Recited, and you launched that last year with your collaborative partner, William Stover. Upon visiting the website, I found it interesting that it became itself a site for investigation, for example, with its proposition to reevaluate the meaning of cross-disciplinary and interdisciplinary artistic forms within the contemporary landscape, and thus challenging the traditional notions of the artist's discipline. Do you consider your website recited and its function as a nexus of intersecting ideas and knowledge and not merely as a functional tool for archiving and making announcements, etc., the way that sometimes websites are used? That question is essentially twofold. Um, and I'll address the idea of recited utilizing and employing the website as a site itself because it's a fascinating question and we really have looked at the idea of how the website can become a function and a platform for artists to create new works on the site itself um but what i will address is just briefly discuss what Recited it is about so that your audience can get a sense of how that would tie into the website as a functionality of that mm-hmm. so uh, <clears throat> it's essentially a, a non-profits organization that I co-founded with William Stover and it's dedicated to examining the psychology of the exhibition site and the conceptual space in relation to works of art and our focus is really to investigate and research the changing nature of sculpture and the intersections between sculpture, architecture and space and essentially to examine how structures frame perception and navigate our walking bodies. How do we understand the architecture of site or a few questions that we ask How does architecture recontextualise the very thing under observation? Every artwork, whether a site in specific installation, an architectural intervention or a painting is in constant state of being recited. So simplistically, the organisation is really dedicated to asking fundamental questions about space, site, as a site for work of art and how do we examine and think space and how do we travel between spaces and how does space become a site? You know, and so it's really thinking about this transitional space. When you think about space as an infinite realm, how do how does demarcation create a whole new site for that? How do we give identity to site? So 
as part of our ongoing research, we're looking at how works of art function in different sites, whether mm-hmm. it be a church, a museum, a gallery, a cemetery, and we'll address I'll address the post-disciplinary aesthetics exhibition in a, in a moment. So we are actually really looking at how these mm. sites completely change the reading of the work of art, how the context changes what the object is, how it functions, and how the reader is actually engaging with it. So to address your original question, website has certainly come up mm. as a navigation for looking at the website as a, as another site, mm-hmm. almost as a physical as a physical site, and to actually use it as a physical site and have artists working within the parameters of the frame, within the parameters of the structure of the website and the internet to see what can be developed. And I think it'd be really interesting to see how they work within those restrictions. And what can actually be developed. And is that what you mean on the website, I'll quote, presented in the form of ongoing chapters? Is that the various separate chapters that you have in mind in regards to physical location? The idea of chapters really is about exploring different moments and situations in space. We're really interested in this idea that works of art become situations in space. So relative to the idea of obviously a chapter in biological terms, a chapter in historical terms, so really referencing all of these nuances. So uh, jumping here with reference to a project entitled 5 by 3 by 5 that you propose to place three identical works of art in three different parts of the city three separate locations. Is that a way to have this tension, like Husserl is talking about, tension between object and its qualities, happening simultaneously, right, in different, three different places? Is that eventually what you would explore as the phenomenological aspect of the work? Yeah, I mean, put quite simply, um, our forthcoming exhibition called Reciting Spatialism, Postdisciplinary Aesthetics, examines the recontextualization of all these artists' work within different locations. So basically we're asking five artists to produce three identical works within their own practice, so identical of their work. Um, And then each of these three iterations will be curated back into five different locations. So what we'll have is someone like Doug Wheeler, who we're currently researching at the moment, produce three of his infinity environments, which will then be placed within three different contexts, Um, and we're looking at a museum, a cemetery, and possibly a gallery to have these three contextualizations happen. So it's very fundamental that we understand that the reworking of these installation works in these different locations will have a huge bearing on the architecture of the site and the work itself. Mm -hmm. And this comes back to our research and fundamental examination with these ideas of site specificity, interdisciplinary aesthetics and multidisciplinary aesthetics. By looking at how these works function in different sites and by looking at these terms that have been aligned to artists that since the 60s and 70s have been dealing with a multiplicity of disciplines across various mediums, 
we use these words interchangeably to describe their practice. And, you know, as curators, we both believe that these words are used and oversaturated. I mean, the words multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, what do they actually mean in relationship to a work of art? Do they relate to the way the artist is actually intertwining disciplines? Do they relate to the way the artist is actually incorporating a multiplicities of mediums into their practice? Does it relate to the way the artist is actually incorporating the architecture of the site into their work as an object, as the medium itself? So all these fundamental questions are what we're relating back to recited, and we're really trying to unravel what these questions mean and examine what these terms mean today. Mm-hmm. So, right, in, and in terms of phenomenology, like um, I brought Husserl here, who is the founding father of phenomenology. I guess we can dig back to even Plato, uh, but. Uh, is speaking of those uh, the tensions between the object and its qualities, does that um, knowledge of the generated knowledge performed as uh, unfolded as it happens, um, the re- the, as the relation between the object of art and the site, um, uh, uh, are these simultaneously um, valid in s- the same way? Or are they in conflict? Is is there is there a discourse, and what drives this discourse? And what are the terms of language that define that? And in terms of Husserl, and um, you know, in terms of that's a very complex question in terms of Husserl, um, because he know, was talking about those uh, the tension between the object and its and the qualities and. Um, having, uh, you know, um, that there, you know, that there is uh, qualities uh, that we perceive inside of our mind as we interact with the object, but it's it's not that, you know, it's not the, the form, the pure form. It it sort of un- unfolds as, you know, as a phenomena. Right. It, it certainly un- unfolds as a phenomena. And, you know, Husserl was very well known for the epoche, which is uh, the phenomenological reduction. Um, yeah, and the kinesthetic consciousness. And it, it, he located the, the movement in the body, and the body uh, in its variabil- abil- uh, variability to move freely. So I, that's why I brought Husserl here, because of this, you know, and the concept of embodiment and is the, very yes, much the prevalent. Embodiment, um, the body as the locus uh, of the distinctive sorts of sensations. That's right. That's defining the reality. So, I mean, in terms of his rule and, say, looking at a large-scale installation, so let's, you know, for example, let's discuss someone like Doug Wheeler or Caroline Coutier, who I recently wrote a catalogue essay on, you know, moving through these infinity environments of Doug Wheeler and what... Doug is so prevalent in doing, he creates a hyperbolic form. It's, it's based on non-lucidian geometry. So he creates these infinity environments that, in, in essence, they're, they're shaped in a circular form. So how you experience the actual space itself, the infinity environment, is there's no point of origin, there's no point of reference within the space. So in terms of this idea of embodiment and in terms of this idea of experiencing 
and perceiving the object, there is no object to perceive in terms of Doug Wheeler's work. So what you're perceiving is turning back onto the body itself, the perceiver. Right. Okay. Right. So... And Husserl also places the body at the center of, he certainly of that places gravity. The, yeah, I mean, more so Meluponti does in a sense. Husserl, the idea of this phenomenological reduction in relationship to, say, someone like Doug Wheeler is a perfect example because what happens right. is your body is so reduced within that context, it undergoes a reduction itself where you're blinded by perception. So Wheeler's ability to really create an idea of what infinity is and what perceiving means um, is poignant within these infinity environments because he makes you engage with the body in space as of space, as being part of space, not separable from it. So we really begin to understand how the body is a perceiving being, how the body moves in space. And I often describe this idea, particularly in terms of Wheeler's infinity environment, as you lose a perceptual blindness, okay? Mm-hmm. And it's very similar to the experience that you would feel out in the desert, spending, you know, longevity out in the desert where you're actually, your whole body, your cognitive function, your neurological right. functions turn inwards that, because really, yeah. you cannot perceive anything. So through this blindness, the body and the mind undergo a phenomenological reduction mm-hmm. to return right. it back to Husserl. So yeah. the whole reduction occurs simultaneously mm-hmm. with the body and the mind, which is very Eastern. And this uh, reminds me of um, Robert Smithson and his experience of uh, driving on the highway. Absolutely. Uh, would yeah. you bring that as an example of, yeah, um, he, that he, he think he... <laughs> Um, had an empirical experience of that <laughs> by uh, just driving on the highway um, somewhere in New Jersey. I don't know where that was, but uh, this reductionism of That's just right. the pure horizon and the road in front of him and whatever the lights of the car were um, illuminating at, mm-hmm. at, at the time. And so, that's the foundation of minimalism eventually, That's right, right. and that's the foundation of perception mm-hmm. yeah. to really... Not the foundation of perception, but the foundation of re-examining perception. So let me just go back for a minute. Say when the horizon line collapses within the foreground, really there's no point of reference. So through this perceptual blindness, you can actually engage with the activity of perceiving. Mm. To go back to what Malou Ponty was saying Mm. um, and what I indicated at the beginning of uh, the interview was that in order to perceive and in order to evaluate the concept of perception, you need to stop perceiving. It's like what Immanuel Kant says, you can't understand the concept of understanding while understanding. So what these artists do, predominantly coming from the space and light movement, um, where the reductionism is really returning to the light itself, to the space itself, So what they're doing is they're eliminating the object in favor of the experience of the light, where what happens in turn to the body when it experiences pure light or pure space is that we have a gestalt, like a Gansfield effect, okay? This idea of the Gansfield, which is where it's pure blindness. Right. And in that pure blindness, 
is when you can actually get a real understanding of what it means mm-hmm. to perceive. So it's really a retraining and re-looking because we're so trained to look at objects. That's right. That's and the way that we absolutely. perceive and the world uh, from an early age. Yeah. And to look at them in a specific way, in a certain way. We are being taught through language how to define mm-hmm. and how to relate to um, from early ages in our, of our lives, how to define reality. And now how to redefine this is to, like what you're saying, to stop or suspend That's that right. very mechanism of learned, conditioned uh, act of per- perceiving. Which is what Husserl, the phenomenological reduction yeah, is about. Is it all about suspension? How do we suspend exactly, that, that's what, the uh, engagement with the form? That's what I uh, took from Husserl. And I, yeah. it's really nice to observe how that interlaces, how that folds <laughs> Husserl. Yeah. You explained it so eloquently. Yeah. Seth. And um, your work with Natasha John's Messenger is really in line with what you're talking about because that exhibition i didn't see it but i read about it questions and challenges are perception so just to go back a little bit in 2015 you curated a solo exhibition of the artist natasha john's messenger entitled threefold at the museo dolosaurus in williamsburg the project was an extensive experiential perceptual installation that required months of planning and construction We'd love to hear more about that project and your involvement. What drew you to Natasha's work? In what ways was the exhibition an extension of your conceptual investigations and concerns as a curator? And I think a lot of what I saw in that exhibition online, I think you've already kind of gone through, but I'd love to hear you continue your thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. You know, Natasha's a, a really interesting artist. Uh, she's an Australian artist and based in the States. And she obviously comes, she's been practicing from the, uh, since the 90s. So, you know, Erwin, Terrell, Ulfa Eliasson are really her, her predecessors. And she takes a lot of cues from them and she's heavily influenced from their, from their practice. But what she does is, is seemingly very distinct, um, to the ways that they work. She directly um, engages with the architecture of of the site as her medium. She's fascinated by um, certain iterations of site, how the site functions as a medium, how it functions as a framework. And one of her most prevalent materials is mirror. Mm-hmm. So she demarcates space, provides... Um, new ways of looking at the space through the simplicity of meticulously applying mirror into the architecture of the site, which then reflects the outside back inside and vice versa. She examines this really interesting play of inside and outside simultaneously by reflecting the outside in and inside out, which a lot of these artists, you know, really deal with. Um, So I've been following Natasha's practice for a very long time, obviously being in a base in Australia. And when she moved to the States, she knew about my research in phenomenology and perception, so asked me to curate the exhibition. So it was months and months of rigorous planning. It was an offsite project, part of uh, ISCP, International mm-hmm. Studio Curatorial Programme, their offsite project in, in La Musée de Rosales uh, in Williamsburg. 
So we really worked together with ISAP um, as well as the directors of the museum to reconstruct and completely um, change the architecture of the site. So, you know, this project for me was very interesting in a multiplicities of ways because it really challenged the role of the curator mm. and really made me, me question the role of the curator when dealing with large-scale installation works and when dealing with artists that predominantly are site artists. So because you are there from the early iterations of conceptualization, schematic design, visualization, right to the installation. So it's a very different experience to being, you know, working with artworks. You are directly working with the artist and you're directly conceptualizing along with the artist how this work is going to function. And in particular with this exhibition, I actually had a lot more involvement even in the inner workings of the structure itself. Um, and I worked quite closely with Natasha on how the structure would operate mm. um, and really re-examined her practice and looked at a lot of her photographs that she had taken of sight. And it was really the first time that she aligned photographs, images of site alongside her installation work. So it was really a wonderful, wonderful experience for me to be working with an artist where I could really re-examine the whole practice and really have a, a greater insight and give her something back because of my own research um, on perception and phenomenology and, and knowing what she wanted to achieve. Mm -hmm. um, so really bringing that theoretical component together. to... absolutely. Yeah. And you included photographs? Yes, so <clears throat> she included images of mm -hmm. site. So something quite prevalent in Tasha's practice is taking abstractions of the site itself. So whether it be, you know, the wallpaper or the, the, the ceiling, she will extract fragments of it and turn that into a work of art, actually often referencing art historical moments or figures and identifiable images where she will act actually extract from the site and then place them back into a photograph. So it's this really interesting process of the site becoming a photograph and then the photograph becoming, go, you know, recontextualizing back into the site itself. Uh, specifically, that was actually a window, part of the architecture and the room. So by perpetuating and replicating that image, the artist created this infinite horizon. And I think in terms of what you were talking about, Husserl and phenomenology, that folds in really beautifully because it's like a new site within a site by self-reflecting uh, on itself eventually became that with an uh, optical prism and the periscopic devices. That, that's like the essence of what that's the phenomenology of, uh, Well, that's is. the essence of her practice, which I describe as optical prisons and spatial apertures. She uses framing devices where, within this instance, each mirror was placed with such precision and mathematical exactitude that it became a labyrinth. Okay, mm -hmm. so you're walking throughout this in passageway and you're not entirely sure whether you're walking to the entry hall or the back. So it becomes a complete displacement. The body undergoes, again, another type of displacement and another type of suspension. Right. Um, I can so imagine that it's an experience that's, on the one hand, disembodying and then reaffirming of the body at the same time. <laughs> I can't explain it, but to be lost 
is a uh, strange feeling, I'm sure, especially in that perceptual arena where you're questioning what's around you. And she creates that. That is a really poignant way to to contextualize it because even very simplistically when we think about being lost, um, even as travelers, when the body is lost in some location, what do we become aware of? We become aware of the body Mm -hmm. and our cardinal location. So it's really fascinating. It Mm. operates on, you know, in threefold, hence the title. (laughs) Uh, You know, it it happens in a localised body and then the body within this installation. And it it happens to us every day Mm. as travellers, as moving bodies, as bodies experiencing artworks like large-scale installations um, that are made up of optical prisms and mirror devices to intercept our walking body and to disrupt the knowing that I was describing early on. But it happens at, you know, such basic levels as well, such basic layers of this idea of feeling lost is a really, really nice way to think about mm -hmm, it. But ultimately it seems like a reaffirmation of the body. It's completely a reaffirmation of the body Mm -hmm. because through that losing the sense of location, you actually understand because what you're doing is trying to retrace your own location. So through that retracing, you can then mark the body in space. So that's what she does. And and it's very interesting that she brings us back to a body in space. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And uh, you also look at other artists who work with this concept of the inside and the outside and the light and the space. And I see that uh, recurring uh, theme in your curatorial, critical and scholarly work that that you constantly... um, Redefine and uh, re-examine by uh, work of these artists and um, uh, another artist that uh, is working along these lines is Carol, Caroline Clotier and I was uh, thinking um, about um, her installation Hiding Behind the Corner from 2017 actually um, uh, that one produced at the residency at the British School in Rome where she replicated a doorway of a gallery into a uh, photographed life-size image. So she re-engineered the architecture of the site by replicating uh, the doorway and inserting it um, uh, into the gallery. Uh, And you you brought a reference of Egyptian tombs with painted passageways and portals which symbolized uh, entryways to the spiritual world, uh, to to the um, metaphysical world. Realm, uh, and uh, those passages, uh, those passageways, those fake landscapes that Egyptians were painting had very uh, spiritual function, very symbolic function. And I was um, uh, wondering, like you observe in the um, in the essay um, that you wrote uh, on Clotier's work, that was referring to another installation that we'll get to in just a moment. In between. Uh, Clotier is re-engineering the gallery, uh, destabilizing its uh, optical perception uh, in relation between the human body, the physics, the perception of uh, architecture. Are you pointing to a new third space? Um, Are you observing that through Clotier's work? Uh, A new third space that's resulting from the cognitive and empirical experiences? Um, or by uh, making this reference with the 
Egyptian tombs and the symbolism reference there, uh, are you suggesting that there is uh, that there is the resulting metaphysical and spiritual layer? Are you going beyond the observable? Um, you know what's very interesting about Caroline Coutier's work is she's a Canadian artist. She really collapses this idea of representational in real space, and what's happening in this work that you're referencing hiding behind the corner is she's taking a photograph of the architecture and what she does she recontextualizes the image into the site itself in a very different way to say the artist Natasha Don's messenger is doing what Caroline does is actually takes an image of the site of the architecture then she places that image inside the site, collapses the real and representational space where you're not really quite comprehending whether it's the real architecture or it's actually an image of the architecture. And she relates this back to the this idea of the frescoes in Rome right. where they were recreating these illusionary passageways where they were recreating imagined worlds so this exchange and reference is very interesting and you know in terms of the frescoes we're looking at you know indicating that the audience is very well aware that the frescoes are imagined Mythologies, right? And it's that, symbolic, and it it's has symbolic. Okay, it's so a, it's a narrative. It's a narrative, right. and they were based on this idea of recreating this third kind of space that would take you to the cosmogenic world. It would lead to another space. And what's interesting in Caroline's practice is these images are also alluding to this third kind of space, but in a very, very different way. It's more of a metaphysical consciousness kind of space. So in this installation hiding behind the corner, which was produced at the residency of the British School in Rome, she essentially makes space simply by creating a replication of it. Inside the gallery space, a photograph of a doorway or passageway was reconfigured in parallel sightline to its physical counterpart. And it's all about the perfected symmetry between the architecture and its imitation that this perfection performed as architecture and as I said before the apprehension of space is challenged the perceptual depth is challenged and just through the inversion of the image itself we have this whole recreation of sight and challenging the way we perceive the sight so what I what I think is really poignant here is how Coraline brings us back to the basis of image making and that is the transferring of light both through the photographic image and through the employment of mirror as well. So she does this really interesting recontextualization of the photograph where the image performs as architecture. But do you think that the element of symbolism is um, not relevant there, which is the case in the Egyptian uh, paintings? The Egyptian frescoes. Like the inherent meaning yeah. in the original uh, tomb painting? Yeah, like the function of the, the space um, painted in Egyptian uh, frescoes in tombs 
was to uh, suggest in symbolical way an entrance to the metaphysical world. Absolutely. I mean, would you say that there is a trace of that symbolism there? Absolutely. I mean, I describe um, in my essay this idea of the third space and right. what does that third space actually mean in relationship to experience the architecture. What Caroline does with this idea of the third space in relationship to the frescoes is really identifying the in-between space. Mm -hmm. Okay, what happens in those thresholds? What is this threshold to? What is that passageway? So, yes, the relationship is certainly prevalent and evident there as being symbolic to a spiritual underpinning and to a spiritual gateway, um, if you like, as I said, to a cosmogenic world and to another world beyond the physical realm, to a world more aligned to an immateriality, to a spirituality, um, which was very prevalent, especially in the frescoes in the Egyptian tombs and obviously. So it became, she is referencing that and she is restaging this illusion through having a knowledge of how these frescoes and tombs operated and functioned. But it's really a contemporary version of it. Mm -hmm. It's more of a contemporary ideology of space and a contemporary ideology of going into a metaphysical realm, a space in between that realm. Right. And how does the image transport us into a metaphysical space? Right. Oh, okay. And how does the architecture... And that's directly referencing the exhibition, The Invisible Dog, um, right. the space in between. Absolutely. Yeah. And I just wanted to go in, into that um, exhibit, which, is, um, which took place in uh, September through October of last year at the Invisible Dog. It was a uh, culmination of her residency program at Invisible Dog. She presented the in-between, um, the, the title um, of the work, uh, where she used wood and glass panels and mirrors with fragment and repli uh, replicated the existing uh, ar architectural space. And in the essay introduction, uh, you point to the symbiotic relationship between the object and the light between the space and the architecture, and you, you also refer to the 60s and 70s uh, minimalism and its reductionism, what we hinted at uh, just before in our discussion. Removing representation, dematerializing, eliminating the object. Uh, following what you referred to in your um, catalog essay, uh, the reflection, which uh, in Latin is uh, reflectere, to bend back, which, again, applies to how the light operates. And I, I was thinking of camera obscura, um, the bending of the light by the mirrors, which uh, evokes the sensation of a suspended inside and outside. Um, so uh, how, how do you define the in-between in, um, in terms of uh, the principles of minimalism and reductionism and, um, and then uh, further you know, phenomenology? You know, this idea of the mirror, which is really, it's such a complex material, but yet it is just so simple. So this idea of reflection and the mirror and this idea of reflector, Latin for to bend back, when we really think about this concept of the mirror, it is so intrinsically poetic that it bends back the viewer's gaze. But what is it bending back the viewer's gaze to? And when we think about the mirror, it's essentially a carrier of information and of light. And light in many ways also carries and transmits pure information to the object or thing being observed. Hence the idea of reflection. 
So in Cloutier's presentation at the Invisible Dog, which she applied a multiplicities of mirrors inside a wood, very basic structure, which was just made of wood panels, which is directly next door to the Invisible Dog. It's So this very skeletal, skeleton foundation building made purely of wood panels and windows. She installed a series of mirrors that basically transmitted information back and forth and the mirrors were located in each different panel. So she created this really interesting prism that was happening. In, you almost felt like you were walking into a camera obscura. You almost felt like you were working, walking in between space itself where you were experiencing the transmission of the mirror transmitting with light and you were the body inside that. Mm-hmm. And what was so prominent about this is each mirror was applied with such precision in a systematic ordering that it became this serious succession and it really created an illusion of separating space. Yet it also created simultaneously and exposed at the same time this idea of one continuous fold of light. And this was exemplified by the infinite rays of travelling light. So through mirrors being placed in each panel, you had reflections moving back and Mm -hmm. forth. The body was part of those reflections, the architecture of the site, it was fragmenting the architecture of the site. So the mirror turned the whole edifice into a camera obscura, a central apparatus that, that is close to Clotty's presentation of, of perception. Mm-hmm. And the function of the window now became, as a translucent looking glass, became defunct. And as a result of this, the whole gallery transformed into a conscious active image, folding in motion, expanding and refracting in space. And here, mm-hmm. what she does, what the artist actually does, exposes light's function as a transmitter of information through that simple application of placing the mirror. Mm -hmm. And also, through that simple application of placing the mirror, she inverted the inside and outside Mm -hmm. and created an in-between space. Um, This in-between space is really prevalent to her practice in a myriad of ways because she creates... She places the viewer where we, we actually gain access to the transmission, to the transfer of information. In this in-between space, in my opinion, the in-between space is the most important in-between space. You think about a body in transition or the idea of transitional space or just the idea of transition. That is what she does, is exposes this transition. And in my opinion, this transition is, is really important in understanding from how the body moves in space to how the body perceives an object in space. And I use this idea of of Borges and a really lovely quote from Borges about the labyrinth. And he says, is it to suggest that the labyrinth is always a split between the inside and the outside, that it can only be infinite in so far as it has an outside? In turn, can we ever, only ever be understood as being inside. A split between the labyrinth and the world is always a choice between two paths in the labyrinth. There is only the labyrinth, but only in so far as we cannot be sure whether we are inside of it or whether we are outside of it. 
and whether it exists at all. Mm-hmm. So this quote really exemplifies what Cloutier presentation of perception is about, is crea- mm-hmm. really recreating that labyrinth where there is no demarcation of inside and outside and where we gain an access to the transmission of light mm-hmm. and also to that idea of how do we actually demarcate space? How is How do structures actually change the way we understand space? I can o- imagine also that the body is fragmented through the fragmentation of light through the mirror reflection. You mentioned that the architecture is fragmented, but the body passing through the space is also. um, We're perceiving these mirrors and our bodies through them and the discontinuation of our bodies through the fragmentation of the reflections. Absolutely. You know, and the body becomes so fragmented that again we lose a sense of yeah the location mm-hmm. of the body in space and what's so interesting within this context is while the body is being fragmented and as i mentioned earlier that cloutier actually compresses representational and real space together we actually become part of that question mm-hmm. is our own body real what is being represented and what is being reflected in the mirror where we are so dislocated and fragmented that the image of ourselves is extraordinarily distorted. So then we begin to ask that question. Mm -hmm. So she's a very clever artist that really brings us back to the basis of image making, to the basis of locating the body in space, and really just on a very basic level also brings us back to how images are are made, which is the transference of of light and travelling light. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to take a moment. Uh, We are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, which is a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community um, and promote education and free expression. Radio Free Brooklyn is proud to conduct after-school program for local teenagers through media making using hands-on approach guided by local professionals. Tune in to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org. Thank you so much for listening. I Art New York. Melissa, so you worked with uh, numerous artists who has uh, their concept based in science, like Dog Wheeler and James Turrell or Alicja Kwade, who was born in Katowice in Poland. She's a contemporary uh, Berlin-based artist who creates immersive installations that explore concepts of space, time, cosmology, mathematics, and philosophy that engineer the viewer to question their perception of reality. So again, we come back to this uh, phenomenological reduction and question of perception. Alicia Wade participated at the 57th Venice Biennial in 2017, showcasing her cosmological work Pars Pro Toto. Father was also selected for the 2019 Roof Garden Commission for the Metropolitan Museum of Art. She's also going to have two big solo exhibitions, one at Dallas Contemporary in Texas, opening September 15 and another sister exhibition at MIT List in Boston, which is opening on October 17. What's the focus of your latest interview that is going to be published at the Bomb magazine? I've been uh, following Alicia Quadra's practice for many, many years, and I haven't had the privilege of working with her yet on a large-scale installation, um, but we are certainly uh, interested in working with her for our post-disciplinary aesthetics exhibition. I had the honour of interviewing her uh, for Bomb magazine 
And what particularly interests me in Alicia's practice is how she combines the disciplines of cosmology, quantum mechanics, physics and mathematics into a series of sculptures where she actually uses these theories as a basis of her examination and really introduces a new type of measurement. And that measurement is the medium of sculpture. So she uses the medium of sculpture really to measure these ideas that we, how we've construct reality. And what she's really primarily interested in is how information is transferred to an object or thing and how we really do construct the perceivable being. What is perception and how is perception constructed? She incorporates conceptions of time, language and measurement to examine the complexities and also to challenge the systems that have navigated our conceptions of reality. And in many ways, she uses a visual system to examine the relations among objects as well and the mechanism of perception itself by initiating a physical experience of parallel universes, space-time continuum, gravity and the mind as architecture. So this is really interesting for me, obviously, um, given my interest in phenomenology and perception and what how she deals with these complex navigational systems, how she deals with time, how she interrupts time, how she works with these measurement systems as a visual aesthetic, um, you know, and how she really interprets these theories into a visual mechanism. And she really provides an aesthetic experience of of a visual theory. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, Kawada's hypothesis directly relates to Plato's allegory of the cave, alluding to what we see and what appears and what does appear to the naked eye in acute observation is in fact a pure construction made up of multiplicities of universal consensus, mythologies, fact and fiction. And obviously, as I mentioned, the, pre- the construction of time is for Kawada a prevalent recurring theme that addresses yet another construction conceived purely as a system of order. So her work is such pure po- poeticism so I interviewed her for um, her recent exhibition at the Met installation, Power Pivot, um, and her recent exhibition, Power Particular, at 303 Gallery. So essentially what was really poignant and what we focused on uh, in the interview surrounded, obviously, the nature of perception, time, memory, and how we conceive reality, and essentially also asking what the conditions of our experience are and it's coming out uh, in mid-August. Wonderful. Oh, looking really, forward to that. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. And also the the 5x3x5, five by by five, because I intend to go to every location of Absolutely. each of those artists. Yes. Well, that's going to be a very challenging uh, <laughs> execution. Is and, and that's one of the uh, questions that we're grappling with at the moment, is how do we actually engage an audience um, and hold their attention throughout each different space where we actually make them experience it maybe on a one day or two days or over a weekend. Yeah. In trifold, three different sites simultaneously in parallel. And yeah, and having that trace and reflect. And back. having that trace is really important and it needs to be within a, a, a certain limitation of time and it needs mm-hmm. to be experienced almost simultaneously so we're really asking the question of how is that going to be achieved um, Mm -hmm. and how do we actually undertake that 
And what's so fascinating about your curatorial work is that you have these very concise problems that you're uh, putting forth and the artists that you're working with work in very specific and idiosyncratic ways to resolve these questions. And that's so beautiful. And you're, this has been an incredible learning experience to hear you speak. Absolutely. And uh, speaking of uh, the interdisciplinary um, platform as a way to begin critical thought, thinking about uh, in incorporating sciences, mathematics, philosophy, uh, and apply that, you know, through filter through art history is actually what the founding idea of Reverb is. And I wanted to um, talk about that a little bit, which is the online publication you are launching with Recited. Uh, it's a platform to bring in those other disciplines and voices uh, other than art history uh, to visual art discourse, like mathematics, music, uh, architecture. Uh, do you challenge the art historical uh, discourse? How do you do that? What do you bring new? Uh, what's the innovative? What's the um, new uh, way of looking at history that, that you're bringing forth? You know, essentially, reverb is an extension of art history. And what we're trying to really segment here is how can art history be expanded? How can we really address these concepts, ideas that these artists are dealing with outside of the art historical context? Artists such as Alicia Kawada, Orpha Eliasson, Robert Irwin, Wheeler, among many other artists, have been working with physicists, quantum ideas, cosmology, so how do we actually address what these artists are really interested in and what they're addressing within the context of their own work? So art history seems to segment and confine a lot of these ideas within a, a linear trajectory. So what we're trying to do is really expand this discourse. Mm -hmm. When we think about art history, it started in 19th century, you know, objects, ideas were prevalent within an archaeology context. So artists from early Renaissance were always dealing with science and mathematics, were always dealing with philosophers. So we're really trying to bring back that thinking and Reverb in itself is a way to invite neuroscientists, mathematicians, cosmologists, astronauts to really examine the psychology of sight, space and architecture from their own discipline and it's also really addressing mm -hmm. these ideas of what does interdisciplinary aesthetics mean what does cross interdisciplinary aesthetics mean and so by intertwining all these disciplines into one platform and asking each writer thinker scientist from these disciplines to really engage with a work of art interview the artists and really interpret the work of art from their point of origin will essentially also address what the artist is dealing with. So it becomes a lot more of an informed engagement and we're really excited about this idea mm -hmm. of bringing in these voices where it becomes an interactive platform where we can address ideas of physics. So the artwork is a point of reference and a starting point for the conversation with these 
invited thinkers? Yes. The artwork is certainly the point of reference Mm -hmm. or the artists. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we have developed an editorial board thus far that consists of a very well-known neuroscientist, a very well-known musician. Um, And so already what's unraveling is a whole new way of thinking about these artworks. So a whole new engagement with these artworks and so what we're hoping is to extend these ideas even further and really gain an understanding of what these concepts mean in relationship to aesthetics. Um, you know, when we think about an artist like Alicia Kawada, who is dealing with principles of cosmology, who is dealing with principles of measurements, how does one interpret that? How does one really engage with these ideas that the artist is trying to examine herself mm-hmm. through the mechanism and framework of aesthetics and through a framework of materiality. So it's it's really to address the fundamental origins of these ideas and by addressing the origins of these ideas that will also provide a whole new complexity around the work of art and that's really exciting to us. And it's also, you know, in, inviting new voices. Yes. Uh, and inviting new authority on these works where the authority is not just placed within an art historical context and the meaning is just not placed within an art historical context. It's extending the meaning of the artwork to its original framework. Um, And you mentioned that uh, Thomas Reardon, who is an American computational neuroscientist, um, uh, that you uh, presented Alicia Quade's work to him, that you went to see an exhibit, and uh, you invited him to contribute to Reverb. And I was wondering, um, uh, how is that uh, perspective going to unfold from that point of view of neuroscience? I mean, uh, Riordan um, uh, was the CEO and the co-founder of CTRL Labs, uh, and um, form- formerly he was a computer programmer and a developer at Microsoft. And he's credited with uh, creating Microsoft's discontinued now web browser Internet Explorer. So we have computer science, you have neuroscience, um, uh, you have all the uh, all the scientific background. Um, and I I wonder what how is that uh, launching point going to happen, and what's going to be the point of uh, starting the discussion. Um, a particular uh, work by Alicia or uh, just general general framework of her concepts um, is, is is are you going to leave uh, leave it open for him um, have you thought about those ideas how to engage and intersect uh, the aesthetics of Alicia, Alicia's work as a starting point so what we're looking at is uh, certainly this is something we're working through um, and how we actually engage Thomas Ridden per se and whether it's through a series of interviews or whether it's through written articles and essays but at the moment um, what's coming out of a lot of discourse is thinking about how uh, quantum physicists actually engage with philosophy and actually engage with theory, actually engage with science fiction to actually drive their theory and drive their measurements. So it's this really cross-disciplinary mode of thinking that's occurring. And talking to Thomas Reed, and it, it becomes really, really prevalent that neuroscientists takes theories from 
philosophers takes theories from all these mm-hmm. other disciplines and that's been something that's been really mm-hmm. fundamentally important to our discourse and when I took Thomas Reedon into Alicia Kawada's exhibition at 303 Gallery and we're engaging with her work Trans for Men uh, Eleven Stones placed in a serious succession separated by mirror and on both ends of the work you had a perfected sphere and on the other end you had a perfected cube and within this sequential succession Kawada was dealing with notions of the Fibonacci sequence and also looking at this this form in transition she's very interested in this idea of the transitional state of being and engaging Thomas in dialogue about this particular work was extraordinarily fascinating because obviously I came from it with a philosophical viewpoint an understanding of phenomenology and understanding of how the mirror worked and functioned comparatively to the ascetic and to the form what a perfected cube was comparatively to what a perfected sphere worked on an ascetic level as well as an installation and how these stones actually transformed and functioned his interpretation was completely different to mine where I was examining the body, I was examining the thinking structures, the mechanism that went behind this body of work. He reduced each stone Mm. into a ratio. And he was explaining the distinction between the the perfected form relative to the form in transition and why we understand these forms comparatively different it had to do with the number of ratios and the number attached to each form. So, in the sequence. In the sequence. So, the perfected sphere obviously had less information. So, he was looking at the information, the coding information attached to each form, how we decode that information and how that information is transferred and transmitted, and why we see the perfected sphere as this perfected symmetry is because of the the amount of information that is in that cube. You know, the whole experience of engaging with him on these concepts, it was just a very different conversation. It's almost as if it gave it a new meaning. Look, it's almost as though we were looking at two different (laughs) objects, you know, and and that's what was so fascinating. And that was truly a moment uh, where I started to understand the complexities of objects Mm. and understand the complexities of perception because you have a neuroscientist comparatively to a philosopher curator discussing the same object in a completely different way and this is you know the basis of all perception and every interpretation is completely valid and this goes back to your practice in very general way which is to broaden our understanding of the object that's right and to really um bring it back to its origin you know where if we are looking at the fibonacci sequence how does the fibonacci sequence work on a cognitive level how does that function how does the brain actually interpret that sequence how does the brain interpret seriality infinity i mean all these ideas philosophers have been grappling with, art historians have been grappling with, with the context of, of artworks that deal with these concepts of infinity or seriality. When you actually have a neuroscientist discussing the concepts of infinity and seriality, 
we really start to understand the inner workings of neurological functions and cognitive functions and where you're breaking it down to photons and where, you know, you're not looking at light anymore. You're breaking it down to these really beautiful structures where mm-hmm. science becomes pure poetry. Right. Well, this would be a real learning experience or your audience online. And- uh, absolutely. And that actually what you were discussing uh, reminds me of object-oriented ontology and the concept of undermining. And it, it loops back to these ideas um, that started with phenomenology and uh, disseminating the object to understand it to the smallest molecule. Um, we are looking forward to having that happen um, with the works of artists that you will present on the forum of Reverb and recite it. Looking forward so much to these uh, projects and how they unfold. Thank you so much for being here um, and thank you for contributing your voice. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been uh, it's been wonderful for for me to even try to unravel my own thinking. So, so thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much, and we really look forward to reverb on your recite website. Thanks. Sign up for our newsletter to keep up to date with the new programming, upcoming RFB events, interviews, ticket getaways, uh, special offers on RFB, and other cool stuff on radiofreebrooklyn.org slash newsletter. And we are going back to the Creek and the Hills and Devastator with Kate Bell and Focus and the Bass. Oh, 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 oh.